Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Unlock big savings during the Menards Bag Sale at Style and Security with Schlag Lock Sets. Menards carries over 50 styles of interior and exterior lock sets. And with Schlag's wide selection of smart locks and keyless entry locks, there's no more hiding keys under the doormat or losing track of copies. Save big money on Schlag Lock Sets. Plus, save 15% when you fit it in the bag. Now through January 14th, available in-store only at Menards. Save big money at Hey, Holly. Hey, Dave. What's going on today on the What Difference Does It Make podcast? Today is another literary day on the What Difference Does It Make podcast. Literally. A literary day? What? Try that again. Literally a literary day. All right. Uh, why is that, Holly? Because we have a guest today. Alec Whiteman is a corporate attorney by day, but he is a music promoter by night or as a side gig. And uh, he has written a book called Music in My Life, Notes from a Longtime Fan. Let me just read what it says in the bio, tell you who Alec Whiteman is. Uh, Alec (laughs) Whiteman is a senior partner in the national law firm of Baker Hostetler with a long career as a corporate lawyer and a member of the firm's management. Now, that's the first sentence. And like, why are we even talking to this guy? Who cares? (laughs) He's just a corporate shill, uh, you know, this lawyer guy. He's also a huge music fan. I think first, if he had to list his loves, it would probably, what is it? It's uh, family and then and then music, I think would probably be his list of uh, the important things in his life. And then lawyering, whatever that is. But he is also, he's been a member of the board of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and Museum since 2004. He served as a chair on the board from 2013 to 2016, and he remains active with the Rock Hall, including as a co-chair of its current capital campaign and as a member of the board of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Foundation. So while we get into it right now, this is Alec Whiteman, the author of Music in My Life, notes from a longtime fan on the What Difference Does It Make podcast. That must be Holly and Dave. You must <laughs> Hello, be. Hello, Alec. Welcome. Thank you. You must be Alec Whiteman. Very you look exactly like your picture. <laughs> I don't well, think so. Is this it's the picture from? Is the this cover the same the guy? Yeah, about to say this is not the same guy. Is no, it? No, no, that's not what I was looking at. Is this from no. your Duke days? Where? Where was? No, it? high school. High, high school. school. <laughs> yeah. I, um, were you wearing glasses at the time? 
I certainly was wearing glasses, but not those. I, I never had that look until the uh, woman that Small Batch Books hired to do the cover design uh, offered that up. And uh, she, of course, had the high school graduation picture, which is in the book. Oh, yeah, but she, she doctored it and, and sent it to me. And when I first saw it, I thought I was going to throw up. I couldn't believe it. I, I never thought my picture would be on the cover of the book at all, <laughs> uh, let alone that one. But you know, I showed it to my wife and my daughters. They thought it was great. So there it is. That's really all that matters, right? The approval of, of the family. <laughs> some days. Family. They get, oh, yeah. some days. Okay. Really all days. Some days you just won't take their advice or their, their opinion. <laughs> better way to put it. Mm-hmm. The book is Alec Whiteman, Music in My Life, Notes from a Longtime Fan. It's literally Notes from a Longtime Fan. You really documented your whole lifetime as a music fan. You could feel the enthusiasm coming through in the book. This is your passion. Well, there's there's no question. And uh, obviously a lot of uh, detail, a lot of specifics in the book. We can talk about that. Oh, yeah. I, I've certainly had some people roll their eyes a little and say there's, there's too much of that. And then I've had others say how much they appreciate the detail, the specifics, not so much because of, of my life, but because that kind of detail and specifics triggered their own memories, different than mine, but sent them off to write down their 50 favorite concerts of all time, or, you know, the first albums that they bought or, or whatever. Somebody had suggested you started taking notes on, but later on in life, taking notes on index cards. Well, people have accused me of taking notes throughout my life, given the level of specificity in the book. The truth is everything's on the internet. And so when I I did start to write, I did a lot of research. I remember that I saw Rod Stewart and the Faces in Public Auditorium in Cleveland in the summer of 1971. Well, you can get on the internet and not only find the date of the show, you can find the set list. So a lot of that detail, certainly I have a good memory, but a lot of that detail was researched. I did not journal at all. When I started to think about writing what turned out to be a book, I did spend months uh, jotting notes down on three by five index cards, just concerts, albums, artists, memories. So I had a pretty good sized stack before I ever started to think about putting it all together. Reading those, the impact you said it had on other people, it made me start thinking about the concerts I saw early, early on in my life. And, you know, I'm recalling the detail. I haven't looked up any of this at list yet. I know, I know, it's crazy. And you can also find out what your favorite bands are about to play by looking at the set list that they yes. played, you know. But uh, you made me want to recall some of the memories. So it was inspiring that way. Well, maybe maybe one thing people can take away from the book a uh, little, little younger than me is to start doing that. Uh, mm-hmm. When we have traveled internationally over the last 10, 12 years, I actually have kept a daily journal, a nightly journal, 15, 20 minutes at the end of the day, you know, what we did, maybe a funny story or whatever. And and those are invaluable because I can't remember what I did yesterday, but I can go back and look at those journals and recall our trips. But I did not do that through my life. It might have been fun to have done. The only thing you can't find on the internet are tickets. Are you, did you save ticket stubs, programs, things like that to, uh, to kind of jog your memory? Not really. Yeah. Um, certainly not ticket stubs. I do have a, a few, just a few things from years gone by. As I got involved with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I, I have saved all the inductions books and things like that. I do have all of those. But no, as a kid, it's just, you know, my memory and the Internet. <laughs> 
who knew ticket stubs would be, uh, we have people our age unearthing them now, you know, wondering what to do with them. But I would think for our kids, they would be some fun artifacts. <laughs> actually, actually, I hadn't thought about it. I do have the ticket stubs from every concert I have promoted. There you go. And so in the years when I was actually using tickets before everything was bought online, I did save all of those. And, uh, and, and I have those. You described in the book about going to Kinko's to have the tickets printed. There, there they are. Kinko's print. <laughs> the way to do it. I mean, that's crazy. Holly and I have memories of waiting in line and camping out overnight. Did you do anything like that? Uh, were you uh, a music fan like that? Like, okay, Springsteen's coming to town. Or you actually, as you touched on, you you were not a Springsteen fan early on. But was there a band that's like, I'm going to have to spend hours in line to get tickets for this guy? You know, looking back at it, I'm, I'm not sure I can remember doing that. I certainly went to lots and lots of shows and there probably must have been a time or two. I, I don't think I ever I ever camped out. Uh, as you know from the book, I went to Duke and Duke became notorious for people camping out the night before basketball games. But right. That wasn't the case the years <laughs> I, I was there. And I, and I don't know that I can remember actually showing up hours and hours and hours ahead of, of tickets going on. So. One show that you missed the festival Woodstock. Did you, was that on your radar at the time? Was it a possibility that you might travel up from, from Duke to, to go to this crazy festival that you might've heard of? No. And, and my guess is that we, you know, I'd have to have to think about this. That what was that? The summer of 69? Yeah. August 69. And I, and that, and I, I, I was still at home in, in Euclid, Ohio, suburb of Cleveland at the time. Just a short uh, drive away. I was probably getting ready to head back to Duke, but I don't think that uh, I ever seriously considered going to Woodstock. Just not the artist you were, you weren't connecting with it at the time or because it oh, seems like no. you should, I mean, it uh, seemed. Lots and lots of the artists that were there, I was huge fans of at the time. I don't remember hearing a lot about it ahead of time in Cleveland. When I got back to Duke, a number of my friends from the East Coast, from New York City had gone and I heard the stories but I don't remember any of my buddies saying, why don't we, you know, get in the car and drive over to Yasker's farm or whatever the, the place was. That's right. Exactly. Well, you were too busy discovering country music, apparently, at Duke. Although, as a joke, basically, you saw, you took some friends to see Merle Haggard or what? Why would you I go? I, was this ironically you would go to see Merle Haggard or what was the story uh, behind going to this? I, I think the word I used in the book, although I could be wrong, was voyeur. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I think that the music had caught my ear, you know, the melody, the storytelling. You know, I was in Durham, North Carolina, and, and there was country music on the radio. But hearing Oki from Muskogee and, you know, running down my country and you're walking on the fight inside of me or whatever the, the, yeah. that full title was, uh, I probably was a little little bit of a joke. And I gathered some folks up and we went over and... Uh, I went to the show. I don't think there were a lot of college kids in that arena in Raleigh when we showed up. We were a little uneasy, a little uncomfortable. I had hair then, and it was pretty long. And I, I think I said in the book, I remember there were some girls that went with us. There was a group of us and the mini skirts and long-haired guys. You know, we didn't look like the rest of that crowd. I was blown away by the music, though. I mean, Merle, Merle Haggard and that band, they were fabulous. For you, is it the song first or the artist? What, uh, what attracts you to to someone to make them that defines great music for you? Well, I think I've consistently really said throughout my life, it's all about the song. 
Uh, I, I even thought that as a kid, and I'm not really sure. You know, I, I say I, I've always respected great singers and, and great guitar players, certainly great stage performers. But what I'd give my left arm <laughs> to be able to do is to write the songs. Uh, and I never tried to do it. You know, I, I, I think I, I found great songwriters who did it for me. I could play their music and express some of the things I was feeling. But for me, it was all about the song. Now, when I started promoting the shows, as, as you kind of allude to, I, I always used two criteria for the people I brought to town, and that was great music. And the only definition for that was I loved it uh, and nice people. But it all starts with the song for me. One thing that, that kind of surprised me from the book is you are a corporate attorney. You're still yeah. practicing law. Um, I'm pretty much retired at this point. Okay. Uh, most, most of what I do has been transitioned to others at this point. But I, I was a very busy uh, corporate attorney and actually heavily involved in law firm management as well. So I had multiple full-time day jobs, it seemed like. Yeah. So how does one fit in? I mean, concert promotion, I know if you're passionate about something, somehow we can we can always fit it in. But if we didn't know that you were a corporate attorney, promoting these shows would be a full-time job. It could, would seem like a full-time job. Oh, you know, I was only doing seven, eight, nine, maybe 10 shows a year. I had it down to a science. I never ran an ad. I still have never run an ad. I developed an email, first a hard mail list in those days, converted to email. And, uh, you know, we were working small venues. So as as I joke in the book and and have, you know, for years, uh, I spent less time and money doing this than most of my partners did playing golf. You know, I mean, I I devoted time to it, but it it was not time consuming. Yeah, it was funny in that what drove you to do this was a was an old-timey newsletter uh, that you received in the mail from <laughs> from t- Tom Russell, which actually it was 1995. The internet was just kind of getting started, but still there was this newsletter that apparently you subscribed to. Can you touch on that? Yes, I, I was a I was a huge fan of of Tom Tom Russell. I was into the under the radar screen singer songwriters in a in a big way. Uh, you know, coming out of the 80s and into the early 90s. The genre that we now call Americana didn't really have that name at the time. And I was on his mailing list. You know, today people use the Internet. In those days, they took a piece of paper and, uh, you know, you put a little stamp on the corner and you put it in a box and it showed up at somebody else's house. It was like magic. uh, That's weird. I I I was on his I was on his mailing list, and I, I got a, a mailer one day, and on the back of a you know a little four-page fold-out or something, there was a square that said, if you know a venue in your town that would be appropriate for Tom, call this number. And I was a busy lawyer. And, uh, I had it sitting on my desk at the office for two, three, four, five weeks. I don't know. And one day I called it. I, I don't even know what inspired me to do it. The guy who answered the phone was doing Tom's booking at the time, and he said, you're not going to believe this, but he's kicking off a little Midwest tour. He's got a night open between Pittsburgh and Detroit in a couple of weeks. Why don't you see what you can do? So I called every bar in Columbus that I knew that did live music and said, if you bring this guy in, I'll sell 20 tickets. And they all laughed at me. And I called back and I left a message for on the answering machine at the guy's office. I think he was in Kansas City. And I said, I, I can't get it done. Uh, maybe some other time. And the next day I was up in our firm's Cleveland office. I live in Columbus, but I was up in our Cleveland office and my secretary had me interrupted. And she said, yeah, I got a message, Tom Russell called. 
Well, for me, that was, you know, somewhere <laughs> between Mick Jagger and Springsteen or something. So I called him back. He was living in Brooklyn. We talked on the phone probably for 20 minutes. Uh, I seem to remember we talked baseball. We just talked stuff. And, but he said, you got to do this. I've got nothing else to do that. <laughs> I just, just do it. And I said, oh, you know, I can't. And I hung up and, and I called my wife and I said, I just talked to Tom Russell. And I told her this story and she said, well, you have to do that. And I said, really? But I knew a little a little venue in town, an old renovated firehouse. I'd been to a couple of shows there that other people had done. And I called and it was open on Thursday night, March whatever, 1995. And I rented the hall and Tom and his then guitar player, Andy Harden, came in. On eight days notice, I got 99 people there. Literally I literally knew every person in the room, uh, every family member, every friend, client, co-worker whose arm I could twist. And uh, he did a show, totally personalized it, told lawyer jokes, you know, made fun of me. <laughs> I was on cloud nine. It was all done. I said, this is too much fun. So here we are 27 years later, still doing it. Have you seen Miranda? She's walking through the town. She has got... One green eye, the other eye is brown. And as she walks, the air grows warm. Men stare down from rooms. She destroys the hidden line between the wise man and the fool. She's a black bird. She's a black bird. She's a black. So you're just throwing parties, basically, right? Is that what's happening for yourself? Well, it, it, was, it was a little bit of that. I mean, I guess I never thought about it quite that way. They did become events. Over time, the crowd shifted from, you know, my friends and family to true lovers of music. It was fun to watch, as I call them, the music fans connect and friendships develop off you know, among the people on that email list or, you know, some of those people I know still hang out together that met at, at my shows in the 90s. That's music for you. So how many of those 99 people would you say, how many actually became fans and continued to support? They weren't just doing you a favor in the end. In all honesty, very few, mm. very few. I think people continued to come for a number of years because I was twisting their arm or they felt you know, obligated, but only for a few years, you know, and there were a handful of those people who truly knew the music. I, I can almost guarantee you nobody knew who Tom Russell was at that first show. But by the time, you know, he was coming back in 98 or 99 and he came every year and, and the same with others, the crowd had evolved into, into people who truly loved the music. People around town heard about him. There were some people here in town who knew, who knew who these artists were. They began to find these shows somehow. All right, learning a lot about Alec Whiteman and his music fandom and how he turned that into a wonderful hobby. We're going to get into it more with him right after our break. Welcome back to the What Difference Does It Make podcast and our chat with Alec Whiteman, author of Music in My Life, Notes from a Longtime Fan. 
it seems like it took Tom Russell to jump in, but there's other artists. I mean, you, it was kind of, it seemed like it was, well, word of mouth. Like you would use one artist to recommend another artist to break in and, and you would trust these people, you know, like this is someone worth promoting. Is that how that worked? It, it took me a stumble or two to figure that out. But when I did figure that out, it was magic. Yeah. Uh, again, the two criteria, great music, solely defined as I love it, but very important, nice people, had to be nice people. I was just doing this, still am, just doing this for fun. And uh, life's too short. And, and so I needed, I needed nice people. And, you know, again, there was a stumble or two at the front end. And then it, I learned, you know, if Tom told me that Katie Moffat was, you know, and I knew Katie's music, I knew the CDs, was a really nice person. And, and she came in and then she recommended Rosie Flores. And then one night when Katie and Rosie were here together, and we'd all been out celebrating the end of the show. And they went back to their hotel room and called Dave Alvin in LA and said, yeah. Dave, you got to do this show. And, and then there was a spinoff into the Nashville world and then into the Austin world. High percentage of the performers I've brought have been a referral from other artists. And what did Dave Alvin say about these women that called? I, I think I think he said the only reason he came to Columbus was because of two drunken girls. <laughs> <laughs> It's not everybody that gets to parlay their love of music into something. Like you said, I, I think you may, may have mentioned in the book that you never could have have mixed those as a career. You couldn't have become a, an entertainment attorney or it just would not have been the same, but that you were able to parlay your love of music into a gig that pleased you, that suited you. I just really am thankful that I didn't try to combine my passion with my profession. I never was really tempted to do it. But there are people who are, and, they, and I need to be a little careful here because there's clearly a theory that, you know, what you do for a living, you ought to have a passion for. And, you know, when I talk to young lawyers and they're determined they want to be sports agents or, you know, I, I get it. Uh, but for me, I think it really, you know, I, I already had a successful career as a corporate lawyer. So there was really no temptation to jump off that train. But if I had begun to try to take the music connections and what little knowledge I was gathering uh, and, you know, become an entertainment lawyer or something, I'd have taken the fun out of the music and probably not been very successful. I get yeah. that. There was one time, I love this story, where you had to reveal your superhero lawyer status. Uh, and this was with Jimmy Dale Gilmore. You want to elaborate on that? That, 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 was, that, that was my only stumble, real, real <laughs> stumble. And it was at the very front end of this. And, and let me be very clear, uh, Jimmy Dale and I <laughs> later became good friends. And, I, uh, genu and I've never told him this story. If he hears your podcast uh, or if he's read the book, I haven't heard from him. It'll be the first time he knows this story. I never told it to him. And I don't think he knew a thing about it at the time. But yes, I, I had done the Tom Russell show. I, I brought in a guy named John Stewart, of, of whom I was an absolute favorite, another Southern California guy. And uh, I, I, I was on a roll. I thought, oh, this is, this is too, this is easy. And I don't even remember how I got to Jimmy Dale Gilmore. He had had an album called Spinning Around the Sun, which I still think is one of the you know, great records of all time. And it was out and, and uh, somehow I got to me. He's represented by William Morris. So this was, is pre-internet as well, right? This so. was pre-internet. I can't, I really don't remember how I got to him. The guy, the agent, you know, it was a 12 year old agent at William Morris in Nashville. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he sounded 12 you have no idea he sounded 12 okay. he sounded 12 
And so, you know, we had this contract, you know, 30 page contract with all the, you know, riders and this and that, I mean, very professional. And there was a 30 day cancellation provision in the contract. And so now I'm really rolling. I've done a couple of shows selling tickets out of my pocket. I'm thinking, okay, we're going to, we're going to make this a business. And I printed tickets. I had them in record stores and bookstores around Columbus. I had posters printed and I, and I was, you know, rolling. So the show maybe was scheduled for the middle of September. It's the middle of August. I get the Sunday New York Times and I open it up and there on the cover of the Sunday New York Times magazine is Jimmy Dale Gilmore. And I think this is unbelievable. This is too good to be true. This guy I'm bringing to Columbus is on the Sunday New York Times magazine. And about three days later, I get a call from the 12-year-old agent at William Morris. And he says, Alec, bad news. Jimmy's not coming. And I said, what do you mean Jimmy's not coming? He says, he's got an offer to go out on the road to open it for Natalie Merchant. And he's not coming. I said, well, you know, there's a 30-day cancellation provision. At this point, it was like three weeks out. I said, you can't do this. So I had a little to do on the phone. And, you know, I'm pretty mild-mannered. At some point, I said, look, just give me my money back. The cost of the tickets, the posters, I'll give people their money back. And he said, it doesn't work that way. And at some point, he said, welcome to show business and hung up on So... I was unhappy. I did call Tom Russell, tell him the story. Tom and I, you know, already become friends. Tom came in and covered the show, which was wonderful. A couple of months later, you know, November, I get a call from the 12-year-old agent. And he says, Alec, he said, uh, we can offer you a Jimmy, another Jimmy Dale show the week between Christmas and New Year. I said, I'm not promoting the show between Christmas and New Year. So he said, okay, hung up. And again, I'm sure I reminded him that, you know, he owed me Oh, I know you did. I don't know you that well, but of course you did. (laughs) He probably hung up on me a second time. And so now it's a couple of weeks after that. It's early December. And I see an ad in the paper in Columbus that Jimmy Dale is coming the week between Christmas and New Year. And he's doing a fundraiser for what are now my very good friends at WCBE, NPR station here in Columbus. So I called the 12-year-old agent and I said, well, I see Jimmy's coming to town. That's great. But I said, let me tell you something. If you, I've never told you this before, and I don't use this. I really don't in my personal life. But I told him that I was a lawyer. And I said, if you don't give me my $600 or whatever it was, I'll serve him with a small claims court summons and complaint when he's on stage. Brilliant. They sent me my money and I think four free tickets. (laughs) And I have never told Jimmy this story. I've seen crimson roses growing I've seen crystal visions, sometimes they don't make sense. You can see the future, it don't make no difference. Just don't talk about it, babe, you know I love the suspense. That's good. When That's necessary. a long story. No, it's yeah. a great story. I love that was probably my favorite part of the book. Like, okay, there you go. He's he revealed because you in the book you don't really you touch on that you're a corporate lawyer, blah, blah, blah. But it's it's really nothing that you care to mention in this story, apparently, because it's like, yeah, 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 I'm a lawyer. But here's here's the main focus of uh, of of what I love. Is that well, when I when I first started writing it, it was about you know I, I, I the t- the title was right from the beginning the you know music in my life, and I got what probably turned out to be about a, a third of the way into 
the content. And it was too much about my life. <laughs> you know, I didn't want to talk about being a corporate lawyer, about, you know, the girls that didn't talk to me in high school or how my father treated me when I was in fourth grade. You know, I'm just joking there. But the other thing that happened is I got to Neil Young. You know, I know everything about Neil Young. So I turned it into a Neil Young biography. Those two that happens. reasons, yeah, I, can I just put it down. And when I went back and edited it, I took a lot of stuff out about me. And then it was probably a year later again when, you know, the pandemic hit that I actually started writing it really seriously. And the focus always was on the music. And you have used your position as a chair to introduce yourself to some of your heroes, <laughs> specifically uh, Bruce Springsteen, let's say. Go ahead and tell us how Tom Russell got you. You're in with, with Springsteen. Well, Tom had showed me, you know, some point, 96, 97, a, a letter that he had received from, from Bruce. He was living in, in Brooklyn and he got a brown envelope in the mail one day that says, uh, that, that has a letter inside congratulating him on his new CD and it's signed by Bruce Springsteen. To Tom's knowledge, he had no connection with it. Where that got to Bruce, I don't know. Bruce was kind enough to write to him and he showed it to me, which was a big deal. So yes, I was at an after party relatively early in my tenure on the Rock Hall board and I saw Bruce standing across the way with a woman <laughs> leaning against the bar at the, at the Bull and the Bear at the Waldorf Astoria. It was a private party uh, after an induction ceremony. And it was, you know, 2, 2.30 in the morning. And I mustered the courage to walk over and Bruce mm -hmm. was just leaning against the bar. The woman was standing next to him. And I walked up and said, uh, I'm Alec Whiteman. I'm on the board of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I just wanted to thank you for all you've done for the Rock Hall. And he just leaned there with his arms folded. He was nice. I don't mean to imply anything to the negative because he's a wonderful guy. But, you know, he was unmoved at that point. And I said, and I have to tell you, I have a good friend named Tom Russell who once showed me a letter you wrote him congratulating him on his, on his new CD. And Bruce stood up real straight and his eyes lit up and he shook, shook my hand. He says, you know, I remember writing that letter. He said, you know, Tom and I have never met. And I said, yeah, I understand that. But I said, he'll be getting an email from me at 3.30 in the morning telling him <laughs> I met you. Uh, and with that, she stuck out her hand and said, I'm Patty Skjold. And I said, I know who you are. And didn't want to disturb him, but thanked them both, talked for a couple of minutes and walked away. Sometimes you have to use your, your superpowers to it to introduce yourself to people. Have you ever met Neil Young? No. As you know from the book, when really pushed, Neil's my all-time favorite. There's nobody I've driven farther to see, seen more often, or paid more money to see than Neil. I've had a couple of instances, one in particular at an after party, where Neil was sitting 10 feet away from me for an hour or two. He was with his late ex-wife and, uh, and uh, either one other person or another couple, I don't remember. And they were in conversation and so on. But I also knew enough about Neil. I wasn't 100% sure what I was going to get. Good move. And, uh, I'm not a believer, by the way. And, you know, if you see somebody in an airport or whatever, just walking up and sticking your hand out. So, no, I did not introduce myself to Neil. I've never met him. It'll happen. Just lurked in the background a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> you told a story about Art Garfunkel and your experience with Art Garfunkel and how it was different than any of the other shows that you promoted. Well, almost by definition, but yes, the whole Art Garfunkel experience was, as I say, a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Yeah, can you touch on, so a writer is kind of what someone needs before they arrive at a show or things that they expect at the show, or and so kind of, kind of touch on, on what you got, arts people. Honestly, that's a great that's a great question. I'm not sure there was a writer oh. by the nature of how this show was done. 
I'm not even sure there was a contract to be honest. In fact, I don't think there was. So to, to try to make a long story short, uh, I was on the board of the Rock Hall. At this point, I was chairing the board and I had become friends with Jules Belkin. Jules and his brother, Mike, uh, Belkin Productions had dominated, dominated the rock and roll production world from the east side of Chicago to the west side of New York for 40 years till they sold to Live Nation. I mean, they, they were the players uh, here in the Midwest. And I think Jules thought it was hilarious that this corporate lawyer in Columbus was promoting concerts. Little different <laughs> level than what he had done for 40 years. But we got along great and still do, by the way. And so Jules called me one day and said, that he had been friends with Art Garfunkel's manager since the mid-60s, and that Art had been off the road for two or three years with throat issues and was looking for a safe 300-person environment to test a new format. He would come with a guitar player. He would sing some songs. He would read his poetry. He would tell some stories, and he would do a Q&A with the audience. And knowing that I was doing these shows in Columbus, he asked if I wanted to promote it. And I was stunned, of course, but I said, sure. And so I, I did. Now, again, remember, never run an ad, just sell tickets off an email list. And I've got our Garfunkel coming to Columbus. And so I send out my little email and I get swamped with ticket <laughs> requests and I send, still doing those tickets. I've got a printed ticket there and I send my tickets out within Three days, I've sold out what I'm going to sell for this show. And let's, I think the show maybe was going to be on a Thursday. And on Sunday, before the show, I get up and I see the Sunday Columbus Dispatch, and I open it up to their arts and entertainment section. And above the fold is this giant picture of Art Garfunkel and an interview with him and a little sidebar that says, for tickets, call this number. And it's my loft. <laughs> I don't know who did it. I had nothing to do with this article. So arts people clearly had gotten to the dispatch. So for the next two days, I mean, I'm overwhelmed. I'm getting phone at the office. I'm getting calls. Right. You know, every five minutes, the phone's ringing. And you know, I oversold the house, at least as I, my, my version of the capacity. And finally shut the tickets down. So now I've got this big crowd. I've got to bring in receipts. Uh, all of it worked. And then there was art. So I had heard that art could be difficult. You can Google. There are many a story of art walking off the stage when somebody shouted something or, or looked at their cell phone. First of all, actually, is he, he had some advanced people show up the night of the show, his sound guy and a handler. And uh, they started telling us what art needed. You know, Nobody could see him when he came out of the green room, which happened to be in a balcony visible to the floor. Not that anybody was looking up there. We had to drape that off. He would only come on stage from the back of the stage. He wouldn't come from the front of the stage. We had to rearrange things to get, you know, there were all kinds of requirements like that. Not the least of which I, I had to get on stage before the show and say, anybody looks at a cell phone, whatever he's left to walk on. <laughs> I've said it a little nicer than this, but not a lot. But then I introduced him, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee. I'd never introduced anybody mm -hmm. at one of my shows like that. Yeah. Stepped down off the stage, and there was Art Garfunkel and his guitar player and, you know, all that great music. I'd promoted that show. I bruise you, you bruise me.
Richard couldn't have been nicer. He couldn't have been nicer. We went out to dinner afterwards. Mm. As you said, yes, a, a year or so later, uh, my wife and I had lunch with he and his wife, Smith and Walensky's on Lexington in New York. Sometimes it might have been easier to have it all in a writer because then you would have been prepared as opposed to just having these requests thrown at you. Well, I, I could probably write a whole book about writers. I probably should have <laughs> saved those over the years, even even at the yes. level at which I'm doing oh, yeah. shows. Yeah. The writers that some of these agents send out are, you know, unbelievable. Actually, I joke in the book, you know, Dave, Dave Alvin and I love Dave's agent and I are great friends, but, you know, and Dave's got a road manager who takes it all very seriously. And they, they send a writer with, you know, all kinds of stuff. At the end of the day, you know, what Dave wants is, is Bud Light. Yeah. <laughs> and, and a Red Roof Inn, right? And a Red yeah. Roof Inn. <laughs> pretty much for the same reason, because he wants to know exactly what he's getting. Yeah. There's something comforting about that, I imagine, you know, if you're on the road. When I was a kid, there was Howard Johnson's note, I think. Probably the and, same person. Yeah. And the Fried Clams. <laughs> there you go. That's a good band name. I should write Howard Johnson's and the Fried Clams. There you go. Yeah, maybe. maybe we'll... Your second career. Yeah. All right, so let's start on some hard-hitting questions because you're on the Rock Hall. There's been discussion of what is rock. I'm very happy to have Whitney Houston and, and you know some of these artists that people don't consider rock as into into the hall of fame i mean their personality they've they've elevated the music form so i'm very happy that they're in there what is the discussion on the board of like okay what names are we going to submit this year and you know do we want controversy or is this rock and roll or is that even a conversation anymore well let, let me just talk a second about the process uh, i am on the board of the foundation and in that regard i get a vote but I am not on the nominating committee, and that's where a lot of the action takes place. So there is a nominating committee chaired by John Landau, and there's 25 or 30 people in that room. I, I don't really know exactly. Greg Harris, my good friend, who, who is the CEO in Cleveland of the building, is in that room. But so are Tom Morello and Steve Van Zant, and you know a variety of musicians and industry types. And that's where the action is. And every year they meet for a day or two. And as I understand it, very confidential. Each person gets the opportunity to maybe maybe present one, maybe three. I don't remember how it works, candidates. And they debate it. They debate it and try to come up with a list roughly of about 15 nominees. It is my sense that a lot of those, you know, kind of questions that you're asking, those trains have left the station. I mean, that group is is looking for a diverse mix of, you know, genre, sound, color, and gender. And so, you know, they come out with a list of roughly 15 nominees, and then there's a vote. And uh, I do get a vote because I'm on the foundation board, but most of those votes are cast by inductees. Every inductee, every band member who's been inducted gets a vote. So there's seven, 800 people who vote. And the game plan is to get down to five, you know, the top five or six who will then be inducted. Some of the challenges over the years, as I understand it, just interestingly, is there may have been a diverse group that came out of the nominating process, but the people who voted voted for, you know, kind of the same kind of people for a while. I think there's yeah. a real sensitivity now to make sure that, you know, we're not just bringing in, you know, great bands from 1968 or 1973. Right. They're not a bunch of old white guys. Is Jay-Z showing up at the, at the rock hall? How hard is it to get some of these artists to actually show up at the, at the ceremony? 
Well, actually, because I'm really good friends with Joel Parisman, who's the executive director of the foundation, and in that capacity as the producer of the of the show, I, I do have a little bit of inside information. And if I if I told you, I'd have to kill you. <laughs> It'd be worth it. Showing up. <laughs> it is rare, but it certainly has happened that people haven't showed up. You know, the famous one, the six Sex Pistols, who wrote a mildly obscene note in longhand and sent it to Jan Wenner, who then read it to the, to the entire audience. Which was brilliant. Um, that's that's mm-hmm. rock and roll. Both of them both of them did the rock and roll thing. That's great. It's a fair representation. Yeah. And, and you know, there's a, there's a famous one not so many years ago about Mark Knopfler mm-hmm. last minute saying he wasn't coming to the Dire Straits invitation and kind of messing things up there. You know, and- Jay, Jay-Z... Uh, uh, is in getting inducted this year and not ahead <laughs> anything, but I bet Jay-Z is going to be there. Okay. <laughs> Which is more than we could say for Todd Rundgren, who apparently is not showing up. That, uh, yeah, I think, yeah, I think that was one of the first things that after he's, he's like, I have no interest in this. You know, him and Steve Miller, I think, have the same attitude, I guess. Or I, I don't well, know. It's, in, it's interesting because uh, I guess it, I, I don't I don't know either one of them. I had heard that, you know, there's been some agitation on Todd's part, certainly his people, that he had not been inducted. He's been on the ballot many a time. He gets yeah. elected this year. And, yeah, he's actually doing a show the night of the inductions in Cincinnati. Oh, he's going to be in Ohio. And uh, rather than reschedule that show or whatever, he's he's not coming. And yes, the whole Steve Miller thing. I was at that induction. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, the Everly Brothers. And since we recently lost Don, I want to kind of touch on, on you were at that show. How memorable was that for you? And, and what a thrill. Well, it's one of the, one of the highlights of my life. Uh, and I have to say it was a little more than just because I was at that show. I was a huge, huge, huge Everly Brothers fan. And uh we have this program at the rock hall, the music masters will, you know, honor somebody who has been really important in rock and roll. I always wanted to do an Everly brothers tribute. And of course it was pointed out to me that since the two brothers didn't speak, that would probably be a little awkward. <laughs> yeah. So we never, we never did it. And then, and then Phil passed away and uh, I at least thought maybe I'm pretty good friends with, with Rodney Crowell. And I saw that who I'd brought to Columbus a number of times for shows. And I, saw that the night before the Grammys, they had done a tribute in LA to Phil Everly and that Don had asked Rodney to read a letter from Don about his brother Phil at this thing. And I thought, aha, there's a bridge here. And so ended up talking to Rodney and we ended up getting Don and then Phil's widow to agree to participate in a tribute show, of which Rodney would be the musical director. And, uh, he got, you know, his friends, Emmy Lou Harris, and Vince Gill. And we had Graham Nash and Peter Asher and Allison Krauss and Shelby Lynn and Allison Moore. And I thought about it more and more and more. And a fabulous house band, uh, Albert Lee, the great guitar player, who had played with the Everett. And we did a tribute show on a Saturday night in, in Cleveland. And I still have friends who say it's the greatest night of music of their lives. And you can imagine what it was like for me because I've been a little bit involved in Kind of, I was chairing the board at the time, putting the whole thing together. Dream, 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 when I want you in my arms, when I want you and all your charms.
you disclose any of your favorite inductions or inductees? Well, I think I think you're hard, for me, you're hard-breast to top the uh, Linda Ronstadt induction. It was a, a shame that she could not be there. Mm-hmm. Not only, you know, couldn't perform, but didn't didn't attend. Uh, boy, I hope I don't leave anybody out here. There was uh, Bonnie Rayet, Emmylou Harris, Stevie Nicks, Cheryl Crow, and Carrie Underwood. And they performed with a little help from Don Henley, as I recall, but they performed a a series of songs for which Linda was known. Those few minutes of music, I, I still get goosebumps. There's a possibility that this year's uh, uh, ceremony, you know, Tina Turner can't be there. Yeah. Uh, she's in Switzerland and not well. And, uh, you know, there's some others that I think they're, they're thinking about trying to do a little bit of that. I think, yeah, with Carol King, I, th- I have a feeling yeah. Carol King's going to be the one that you're looking forward to this year. Yes. And I, <laughs> and I think that's going to be a pretty special uh, presentation as well. Uh, also, so well, an artist that did mean a lot to you that still does is Dion. You've had some interactions with him. Why don't you? Was this your first rock star as a kid? Like, this is the guy I want to emulate. It's like the impetus for the book, practically. <laughs> well, the the book the book opens with uh, me as a ten year old in uh, Euclid, Ohio. You know, listening to the transistor radio, and and I mean, I've said this a whole my, my whole life. I didn't just make this up for the book. The first song that that really hit me was the wanderer i mean i'm 10 years old he's 21 year old you know we now know in retrospect a heroin addict you know italian american in the bronx and you know what he's singing you know is speaking to and for a 10 year old kid in euclid ohio Mm -hmm. but i was a huge dion fan i saw him solo acoustic at duke i followed him off and on you know throughout my life he was he was just always special to me and yes in the you know last year or two, and it's how the book ends. I've had an opportunity to uh, spend some time with him. Uh, you know, I'm a Facebook guy, and I saw a post one day, some probably, probably uh, following Dion on Facebook, I don't know where I saw it, that there was a musical coming along about his life. 
the Wanderer, which will, in fact, I hope, uh, open at Paper Mill in New Jersey next spring. It's the third time that's been scheduled. So if we get this pandemic behind us, um, it'll open next spring. So I have a friend who's on the Rock Hall board and, and heavily involved in Broadway productions. And I called her. I said, you know anything about this? She said, no, not a thing. And the next day, she called me and said, you're not going to believe this, but you know, I got an email from the executive producer of the show act asking if I was interested in investing and I'm not, but I'll send it to you. So I said, sure. I've said, you know, I've spent at this point 40 years advising clients not to invest in things like this, <laughs> but, but she sent, she sent it to me and, and I ended up calling the executive producer and we, you know, I probably told her that Dion story and told her about how I'd seen Dion at South by Southwest a couple of years earlier with an acoustic guitar leading 200 people singing Run Around Sue at the Driscoll Hotel. <laughs> so I was going to be in New York on business, and she and the writer and, and the stage manager, whatever he's called, came and saw me, and I, and I ended up agreeing to invest in the musical. So, you know, I'm all excited. And right before the pandemic, uh, late February of 20, there was a reading of the musical. Now, at that point, it's scheduled to open at Paper Mill, one of the leading stepping stones to Broadway, just a few months later. And she called and asked, you know, I'm sure all the investors if we wanted to come. And I said, sure. So my wife and I went in to New York and uh, end up in this rehearsal space. I don't even know these spaces exist <laughs> in an office tower in Manhattan. And, you know, you get off the elevator and there's all these little sound rooms and stuff. There's Steve Van Zandt is sitting there. He's the musical director for The Wanderer. And we end up going into the this small room. There's no more than 50 people, but all the cast is sitting there. And the band, they're going to run through the entire musical, start to finish. And right before the musical is ready to start, the door opens and in comes Dion. And people are getting up and hugging him and high-fiving him. And he looks around and uh, he picks up a folding chair and he brings it over. And I'm sitting on the, the center aisle. And he sits it down right next to me. I've got my wife there. She's my witness. And he's there for about 30 seconds. And I turned to him and I said, there's people in this room who have a lot more money invested in this, but nobody has more passion invested than, than me. And he asked, you know, so what's your name? I said, Alec Whiten. And he, he said, you're Alec Whiten? And it, it turned out there was a guy uh, in the crowd there from Cleveland who I did not know, but knew who I was through the Rock Hall involvement. Uh, Dion called him back. And we ended up talking. And then Dion sat next to me for three hours while this musical of his life unfolded. Oh, and I'm the type of guy who will never settle down Where pretty girls are Well, you know that I'm around I kiss them and I love them Cause to me they're all the same I hug them and I squeeze them They don't even know my name And then we, we, we talked a bunch. And the truth is, we've stayed in touch. You've seen the book. Or he was kind enough. He, he, you know, I sent it to him. I asked him to, to read it, certainly read the stuff about him, make sure that I didn't misstate anything. He was important enough to me. And, you know, there's 
some stuff, you know, he had a, some ups and downs in his life for a while, but up for a long time. He gave me a blurb for which we ended up using on the front mm-hmm. cover. I've stayed in touch with him, actually. He's a wonderful guy. This has to be way more thrilling than you're letting on right now. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, when we get off the, the camera here, I'll turn around and go, yes, yes. <laughs> yes. That. He keeps his... Uh, his corporate lawyer demeanor, very, you know, I, I, I sense that a lot. Yeah, let's keep it calm at all times. When you were a kid, probably listening to the transistor radio, what, did, what was your station? You, actually, you had mentioned, like, you were able to get stations in New York and, and uh, in Detroit and Cleveland, all over the world or country. Well, since, since, since you can uh, edit this, you know, you get me telling stories, I'll keep going. So <laughs> as a kid, you know, the, the station in Cleveland was WHK. And there was a disc jockey there named Johnny Holiday. Let's check to Johnny Holiday somehow. Reading 13 minutes now on the other side of 4 o'clock. Here number 26 for the platter pile, the dial tone. Chill, I heard it from you. Heard it from you. On the other rhythm, see number 26 for the dial tones. Last week, 34 for Chill, I heard it from you. It was exactly 11 to go before 4. And WHK Action Central News. Yours at 3.55. Bruce Charles reporting. And Johnny was tremendous. I mean, I'm just a kid, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old. And he left Cleveland. Actually, I remember it was kind of heartbreaking for me. I think he first went to Chicago, then San Francisco, then New York. And so I did an event here in German Village, where we live on the south side of Columbus, uh, about the book. And I asked a guy here in the village to interview me, which I find a lot easier than just standing there talking. And at the end of the interview, he said he had a surprise for me, and he pulled out his cell phone, and he dialed a number. And on, on the screen behind me, I didn't know, they flashed a picture of Johnny Holiday, and he was calling Holiday, who's now, you know, 80 years old or more, in at his home, and they put him through the speakers, and I conversed in front of 75 people with my childhood disc jockey hero, Johnny Holiday. Now, that all was a huge thrill, but I did not see that coming. They hadn't warned me this was going to happen. We got off, and that night I'm at home, and Johnny Holiday calls me at home and says how much fun it was talking to me a couple hours earlier on the stage. And just, you know, he had the book and he loved the book and he wanted to make a connection. Well, we have become, we've connected. So Johnny, at the age of whatever he is, is still the voice of the University of Maryland Terrapins football and I think basketball. And Maryland is playing at Ohio State in early October. And the night before the game, Johnny and I are going out to dinner together. So I'm going to have dinner with the guy who played the wanderer for me when I was 10 years old in Mm -hmm. Euclid, Ohio. How's that for a I love it. Talk about closing the circle. Yeah. That is, uh, wow. Yeah, that's wonderful. All right. Well, what a fun surprise. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I'm, I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled. Thank you so much, Alec. The book was uh, was just a, a lot of fun to read, mm-hmm. especially you know, just a music fan who puts together parties for himself of just artists <laughs> that he loves. Well, thank, um, thank you very much. Yeah, the book that is music insane. music in my life. Notes from a longtime fan, Alec Whiteman. Thank you so very much. Really appreciate everything. Thank you, Alec. Thank you. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. <laughs> All right. Take care. Okay. So that was our Rock and Roll Hall of Fame episode. That's kind of cool. Oh, there's so much more I, I would love to know about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Have you ever been there? 
I have. I actually, I have. It's uh, it is a wonderful place. I, sh- I guess I should have mentioned that that I've been there, and it's a wonderful venue. I guess you should have. Maybe I, I will next time I talk to him. Next time we run into him at, at a show somewhere, we'll uh, <laughs> we'll talk to him. Uh, yeah, the Rock Rock Hall uh, Museum is a, is a wonderful space. If you ever get a, a chance to to visit, I highly recommend it. By the way, welcome to Rocktober. All right, Rocktober. Yes. So happy Rocktober. If you're a rock fan, we're going to give a shout out to our friends at Pantheon Podcast because they have some great rock and roll shows that you should always check out and always check out what we've got going on. Holly, what you got going on? Check us out on social media at WDDIM Podcast and check us out on YouTube. So search for the What Difference Does It Make podcast and you will see outtakes from this interview with Alec and many many more you won't be sorry you'll see lots of lots of fun stuff that might not be in the podcast when you listen to it till next week this is dave this is holly check you later over and out without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running everything would suddenly stop hospitals factories schools and power plants they all depend on you no matter the weather emergency or time of day you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.